We are gathered here today for, I'm sure, a variety of different reasons. You may be here simply because you love being with the church, with God's people, or because you feel a need to be here, because life is hard and you need love from those around you. Or maybe you feel a religious duty or obligation to go to church, or because someone else invited you to come along with them, or because you have a, a commitment or responsibility to serve in a ministry on a Sunday morning. And none of these are wrong reasons to gather here this morning. But there is one reason to gather that I hope is at the top or near the top of many of our lists. And I hope that it becomes the main reason for all of us to gather together. And that is that we are here as God's people to worship God. Right? And we're not here primarily for ourselves or for our sake or for other people's sake. We are here for his sake. Now that said, if we consider how God's people have worshipped in history over the centuries, are you sure that you aren't missing some very important things for your worship today? Are, are you sure it's even possible or permissible for you to worship a holy God today? I mean... Where are your sheep or your goats or cattle? And shouldn't you have them here with you? You say you don't have any livestock. Well, shouldn't you have bought some to bring today? Or like, don't you need to, to make some sacrifice to make things right between you and God? Speaking of which, shouldn't there be some kind of altar up front here? And maybe I should be dressed more like a priest, maybe even holding a, a knife with blood all over. Or are you even sure we're in the right place right now? In a church building, in Ottawa, right? Should we maybe be in a, temp in a temple? Should we be pilgrimaging to the Middle East? And if maybe that's not need, a need for today, shouldn't we have done it sometime in the last year or in the last decade? Well, actually, no. We are not missing anything necessary to worship God together today. We do, in fact, need a sacrifice and a priest and a temple. But we have them in Jesus. And under Jesus, things have changed significantly. In this new year, we are launching into a series of messages all about worshiping our great God. And today, we'll start by seeing, and I hope marveling at, how we can worship at all. What makes us able to approach God's throne in the first place? Because I have a feeling that most of us usually take this completely for granted. And this series will be hopping all over scripture, but for today, we'll first turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to drop into one particular significant scene from Jesus' earthly ministry here. 
Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Judea in the south of Israel to Galilee, their home in the north. But to do so, they had to travel through an area known as Samaria. Because, but I should say they chose to travel through Samaria because most Jews actually went the long way around in order to avoid Samaria altogether. But Jesus knew that he had a divine appointment with someone in Samaria. You can follow along the story with me in verse 5. It says this, So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So, this is already a surprising encounter. But it was about to get much more so. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Life. So Jesus here is using his physical surroundings, his physical circumstances to make a spiritual point, along with a, a very lofty claim. He was claiming to be the giver of life and eternal life. Very significant claim. So the woman didn't totally get the point yet, and the conversation continued. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus knows a lot. He even knows this woman's secrets. And that makes the woman think that Jesus must be a prophet. So she says, she said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And if you're a prophet, you know, there's a question that's been nagging at me lately. And it's got to do with your people, the Jews, and our people, the Samaritans. And maybe you know the answer. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Speaking of the temple. So the woman's question was about worship. She knew that worship was to be central to life, but she was confused. What was the, what was the proper way or the proper place to worship? Now you need to know a little bit of the backstory behind what's going on here. See, the, the Samaritan people 
were descended from foreigners who had been transplanted into Israel after one of the exiles and who had intermarried with the Jews that were left there. And they had at least partially adopted the Jewish religion as their own. But then when the Jews came back from exile, they found these half-Jews living there with this distorted version of their faith. That was a recipe for disaster. And the Samaritans ended up being racially mistreated and ostracized until they stormed off and formed their own little community, an enclave of their own faith, worshiping God the way they thought best, their own unique take on Judaism, and even setting up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is what the the mountain the woman's talking about here. Gerizim, by the way, is one of the mountains that was mentioned in Deuteronomy. Remember when the Israelites had to climb up two mountain slopes and then and shout God's blessings and curses back and forth? Gerizim was the lucky mountain that got associated with blessings. And, and it was seen as special that way. Early Israelites apparently viewed Gerizim as this main meeting place between heaven and earth. The Samaritans maintained that view. And, and the view, they viewed Gerizim as a holy place, central to their worship. So now, the Samaritan woman meets Jesus and asks, you've got your holy place for worship, we've got ours. Who's right? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, you might think Jesus would respond with, well, the Jews obviously have it right. But no, he basically says, the place where you worship is soon going to be beside the point. He says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, he, he, next, he does claim that the Jews were better off than the Samaritans. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But even the Jews' way of worship was soon to change. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth truth. Now this, I imagine the woman saying, well, you know, you may be right about this, but at least one day the Messiah is going to set us all straight. But then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He was like, I know Messiah is coming. He comes, he's going to tell us all things. I who speak to you am he. Now, the story goes on uh, just to, to see how it ends. The woman spreads the word, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar, went away into town, said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Look down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. 
Now today, I say, if he is not your Savior yet, he's the Savior of the world. And like Pastor Kenny invited you earlier, I hope you will hear his words today, realize who Jesus is, how much you need him, and we, like, we would love nothing more than to help you meet Jesus today. Because he can save you, if you're willing. But for where we're going to focus, we're going to look back to verse 20 to 24, because what Jesus teaches here not only revolutionized worship then, but it continues to define worship now for us. And the first thing I think we need to see from Jesus' words is this. That Jesus makes worship knowable through the gospel. And Jesus makes worship knowable through the gospel. This is as good a place as any to pause for a minute and define worship. Because... Today, the word worship can be used so many different ways. It can be used to refer to, to services or events like this one here today. Or we often use worship to refer to just the singing or musical part of a service. Or even as just a label of a musical genre. Like there's so much confusion about it. But we also know, most of us would know, that, that worship is more than just those things. And we hear terms like, Lifestyle worship. But that often just confuses things more because we don't know what that means, to worship with our lives. So then worship just becomes some nebulous notion of devotion to God. But if worship should be knowable, then what is worship exactly? I've defined worship before as loving something or someone with everything you are or everything you have. Like the Shema says, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think that gets at part of the picture, but that can also be kind of vague and undefined. So here's another attempt at a definition, which I'm sure could be stated even better than this. Worship is, worship at its core is coming before God into his presence and responding to him, his person and his works, in order to glorify him. Okay, so it's coming before God, responding to him in order to glorify him. So yes, we love God through our worship. We value him. We cherish his greatness. We also honor him and praise him and thank him and serve him as worship, all of which ascribes value and worth to God. D.A. Carson says that worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God, precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. I told you someone could say it better than me. <laughs> well, let's take that definition, that idea of what worship is, and now return to our passage and take a look again at what Jesus says in verse 22. Verse 22, he says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, you might wonder there if he's talking about some kind of ethnic superiority. But no, 
This was just simple facts. The Samaritans only had part of the picture. God had, was, uh, had blessed the Jews with more knowledge and more scriptures, more prophets, more revealed truth, so that through them he could bless all nations. And so according to Jesus, his Jewish kinsfolk worship what they knew. But did you notice why they knew? Why did they know this? We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So they had a, a knowledge of worship because salvation was coming through them. God was sending salvation to the world through the Jewish people. How did he do that? And were, were people going to be saved by just becoming Jewish people and by making sure they, uh, they started worshiping right, worshiping in all the right ways, all the right places? Was, was Jesus telling the woman, you know, one day you're going to get it right, one day you're going to worship in Jerusalem? No, Jesus made it clear here that ethnicity and location weren't the point. And he's telling a, a Samaritan here, a Gentile, you will worship the Father one day. But it won't be here or there. So how did salvation come from the Jews? It came through Jesus, right? Romans 9, 4 to 5 talks about the many privileges that the Jews had and how it all culminated in Jesus. It says, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So when I say that Jesus makes worship knowable through the gospel, what I mean by gospel is simply the, the good news about Jesus. It's, it's a message. The, the gospel tells us that we're all sinners destined to face God's judgment. But that God sent his son as Jesus, as the Savior, Messiah, to rescue and save us from, our, from sin, from the devil, from death, and from hell. Which he did by living the life that we could not live and dying the death that we should have died. And rising again to give us new life and eternal life. Like that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's how salvation came through Jesus, a Jewish man. And that salvation is what makes the right worship of God now knowable to all. Through Jesus, all these blessings go beyond just the Jews and to the whole world. Through Jesus, worship goes beyond just Jerusalem and Mount Zion, and Mount Gerizim for that matter. Through Jesus, worship blows out the walls of a physical, limited temple and goes universal, which is only fitting for a God of the universe that can't be confined into one location anyway. But, but how did Jesus accomplish this? Author and songwriter Bob Coughlin explains that during the time of Christ, the Jews still viewed the temple in Jerusalem as the place where their sins were acknowledged and dealt with and where God revealed his presence to his people in a unique way. 
How shocking it must have been, therefore, to hear Jesus declare, this is in, in another place in John, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus was pro- proclaiming the arrival of a new temple. Jesus was the new temple. This sheds light on Jesus' mystifying explanation to the Samaritan woman. Jesus was saying that our meeting place with God would no longer require or be limited to physical structures, geographical locales, or specific times. It would no longer require animal sacrifice, Levitical priests, or holy places. In a single conversation, he relocated the place of worship from the Jerusalem temple to himself. Our meeting place with God, the place we now worship, is the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Not a temple, not a church building, not a sanctuary or auditorium. Jesus is where and how we meet with God. The implications are staggering. There's nothing about our worship of God that isn't defined or affected by Jesus Christ. That starts to get at a a second major truth about worship in the gospel I want us to see. Because knowledge of worship by itself would be meaningless, pointless. But Jesus changes things for the better, not only making worship knowable, Jesus makes worship possible for us through the gospel. Jesus had made made worship possible, doable, through the gospel. In verse 23 here, Jesus says that the time was coming that all worshipers would worship. The true worshipers. But the hour is coming now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. But to see more of this, how, more of how Jesus and his gospel makes worship possible for us, I'll have you turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Ways ahead in the New Testament, Hebrews 9. We're going to be returning to John 4 in a few minutes. You might wonder, what do you mean that worship isn't possible without Jesus? Well, you see, there is something that prevents us from approaching God on our own. Or at least it prevents us from approaching God and living to tell the tale. Because God is holy. He's perfect, transcendent, great, set apart from all forms of evil, set apart from people. And at the same time, we are thoroughly polluted by sin. And if sin approaches perfect holiness, it must be destroyed. God can't tolerate it, or else he'd cease to be holy And cease to be God. Think of Isaiah when he got a glimpse of God's glory. Thinking he was going to die. Woe is me. For I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King. The Lord of hosts. Or Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place in order to worship him? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, which would be none of us. 
The only way that we can approach God is if we are purified and if we are escorted there. Hebrews 9 starts out by talking about how special God's presence was, even for the Israelites. It says in, in verse 1 at the beginning, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. It's like God's presence was unspeakably holy and glorious. It was also secluded and separated. People weren't allowed to just waltz in. In order for people to enter... Something had to die. And a priest had to make a sacrifice. And even then, only the high priest was allowed in, and only once a year. That's what Hebrews goes on to say. And then it says in verse 9, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So why couldn't people enter God's holy presence? Because their consciences were not fully purified or perfected by their sacrifices. It didn't go far enough. But when Jesus came, he changed that. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through that greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now that word for serve there is often translated as worship in the New Testament. So Jesus' perfect death purifies us so we can worship God and serve God. How much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And now, he's our escort into God's very presence. Our go-between, our intermediary. Someone had to bridge the infinite gap between God and man. And Jesus did it. He's what the Bible calls our mediator. Look at verse 15. It says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And then skip down to verse 22. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything's purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. 
Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into, the, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's a lot there. Really, just Jesus has paved the way. Okay? One of the most annoying first world problems in our modern world has to be forgetting our passwords, right? I tried to access a website this week that I have an account with, and I kept trying different passwords, and when that didn't work, kept, I clicked the uh, forgot your password link, and they'd send me a password, and then those passwords wouldn't work. Access denied. <laughs> kept getting, just going in very frustrating circles. Turns out I didn't have the wrong password. I had the wrong username. But without Jesus, without Jesus being our mediator, it's like we would get a continual access denied message when trying to approach God's presence in worship. Access denied. It's like, as our great high priest, though, Jesus is our password or our username for us to enter God's presence. Without him, we can never draw near or enter in. This means that no matter how well I preach, I cannot bring you close to God. It means no matter how well the music team hits their notes and beats, or how good they sound, they cannot escort you into God's presence. No matter how much you enjoy a certain song, Songs cannot open the way to God. No matter how much or how hard you pray, you cannot bridge the gap yourself. No matter, how, no matter what you sacrifice for Jesus through your giving or your serving, your suffering, your sacrifices are not sufficient to make you presentable to God. As Coughlin says, worship itself, worship itself cannot lead us into God's presence. Only Jesus himself can bring us into God's presence. And he has done it through a single sacrifice that will never be repeated, only joyfully recounted and trusted in. We need to remember that our access to God is not based on last week's performance, today's practices, or tomorrow's potential. Rather, we're accepted in the beloved and need have no fear of rejection as we come before God's throne. This also means that no other person is our worship leader in the truest sense of the term. Right, yes, we have 
pastors and preachers and singers and music leaders, and I don't think it's wrong to use certain titles, and we all have a role to play in helping people worship, but we don't make it possible for people to worship. We can't usher people into God's presence. We can't make God show up. Only Jesus does that. Keith and Kristen Getty state that Christ is our ultimate worship leader, the choir master of heaven and earth. Both the deep conviction of our hearts and the visible outworking of our gifting should be informed by the knowledge that we all have equal access to Christ, the mediator of us all. Jesus ushers us into God's presence. His very presence through what he does in the gospel. And the author of Hebrews just keeps hammering this point home. Look down with me in chapter 10, in verse 8. It says, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. This is Jesus. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it's only by Jesus' death that we ourselves are purified and set apart or sanctified. And therefore, we don't have to keep bringing animal sacrifices. That's what he goes on to say. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So, if we don't have to make sacrifices anymore like they used to, how should we worship him now? Well, we're going to get a lot more into that over the rest of this series. For now, I'll just mention the couple sacrifices that the book of Hebrews tells Christians to keep making. Like, yes, you're going to make some sacrifices. They're not like these, though. Shortly after saying, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, Hebrews 13 says this. Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then it says, do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, praising him with your lips and serving others selflessly. These are just two ways. Introduction here. but Two ways that we can worship God now through Christ. And notice, though, in that verse, that it's through Jesus 
that our offerings are now pleasing to God. Right? That is, it should be simultaneously humbling and exalting. Because without him, anything we could attempt to do for God would be unacceptable. Displeasing even. But now, our sacrifices are joined to Christ's perfect sacrifice. So God accepts them as if Jesus himself were offering them to him. Harold Best says there is only one way to God through Jesus Christ. That means that God sees and hears all of our offerings perfected. Our offerings have been perfected by the giver, at once humbled and exalted by the strong saving work of Christ. I hope you're getting just a, a picture of a sense of how amazing it is we get to worship God. Like we should not be able to at all. And yet now he welcomes us in with arms wide open. And I hope that this inspires you to want to worship him. You should. Worship is not just a duty or a command or an obligation. It is an unspeakable privilege. Now this point may not be spelled out explicitly in our passages today, but I think it's very much implied. Jesus makes worship desirable through the gospel. Through Jesus and his work, our worship becomes desirable. It's a beautiful thing. Look once more in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. I don't have time to unpack all of what that means, but it's astonishing when you get into it. It's like, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we have confidence that, that God wants us to come and that we'll survive when we come, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that's the gospel there, and there's life in it. It's a living way. And since we have a, a great priest over the house of God who is who's now escorting us into God's presence, verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a, a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If that is not beautiful, I don't know what is goes on, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's like now, wherever we are, through Jesus, we can draw near to God. We can enter his presence. Boldly, passionately, excitedly, reverently, gratefully, and joyfully. 
why wouldn't we want to do this? Like nothing should keep us from worshiping God. There's nothing standing in the way anymore. Right? Not, nothing should keep us from not busyness, not tiredness, not work, not school, not sports, not anxiety, not conflict, not pain. Like this is what we get to do. To, to gather together and worship the Lord. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We should totally want this. If we don't, then I think we need to question first, how amazed by the gospel are we? And how grateful should we be? And if you're not amazed or grateful, start there. Dig deep into what Christ has done for you. And, and don't move on from that until you get it. But worship is not only what we should desire. It's also what God desires from us and for us. For our final point today... Let's flip back to John 4, where I believe we'll see that Jesus shows that true worshipers are what God most desires. Jesus shows that true worshipers are what God most desires. Now, I dare to suggest that this is what God most desires, because what he most desires is his own glory. And the primary way that we glorify him is to worship him. They're almost synonymous. But he's not just after worship in an abstract sense. He's after people to be worshipers. Look what Jesus says. Verse 23. For the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is seeking people out to worship him the right way through Jesus. You might say that God is looking for you to worship him. He desires that you would be a true worshiper who worships in spirit and truth. What does that phrase mean, in spirit and truth? Brian Croft explains it well, I think, saying that Christian worship is spiritual and truthful. Worshiping in spirit implies that, that proper praise involves the affections, the emotions, the desires, and the will. No longer does worship primarily revolve around physical acts such as animal sacrifices. Worshiping in truth centralizes praise in Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ and the truthful good news about his deity, incarnation, death, resurrection, and second coming, worship lacks credibility and truthfulness. 
And Carson adds to this saying, to worship God in spirit and in truth is first and foremost a way of saying that we must worship God by means of Christ. And it centralizes it in him. But God so wanted worshipers who would do this. That he sacrificed his son to make it so. A.W. Tozer says, Jesus' purpose in redemption is to make worshipers out of rebels. You and I were all rebels against God and his ways. Fighting against him, living in rebellion to him. We are created for so much more. If that's not who God designed us to be, that's how evil corrupted us to be. And so God sent Jesus to live, die, and rise again to make things right, to, to restore creation. And part of that meant to take dirty, sinful rebels like us and purify us and forgive us so that our spirits can come into God's spiritual presence and we can truthfully ascribe greatness to the one who truly deserves it in spirit and in truth. In the story here, so the Samaritan woman thought, like, surely the Messiah is going to come and, and he's going to tell us all things. He's going to lead us into truth. He's going to lead us into true worship. She hadn't yet realized that she was looking right at him. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Like, he's it. He's the answer. He's the way to the Father, the truth of the Father, and the life from the Father. And so, Coughlin concludes that the gospel is not merely one of many possible themes we can touch on as we come to worship God. It is the central and foundational theme. All our worship originates and is brought into focus at the cross of Jesus Christ. We come together to retell, remember, and respond to the gospel and all it has accomplished. So as we discuss worship together and hopefully actually worship together, we have to remember why. We have to remember, we are here, we come to worship and should want to worship because of who God is. Because of how great he is. Because of what he's done. All his works, but especially through the gospel. This is the center of it all. This is the focus of it all. God himself. God himself is reason enough alone to worship every day of our lives and on into eternity. Worshiping now is a reflection of what will happen forever. But worship is not just a rehearsal for heaven. It is us joining in the place where heaven meets earth now in Christ. 
through his blood and his sacrifice in his temple for his glory. So may the Father truly seek and find in us worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you capture our attention and captivate our hearts with who you are? May we be truly grateful today and every day, and may we express that back to you. May we respond to what you've done for us with worship. For you truly are worthy of it all. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.